Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Is not complete without the first lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show, Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's a Sunday, and that means you've got the Joan Hamburg Show at 2 o'clock. In fact, we're on 2 o'clock every Sunday, so come on and join us. And we're really very happy with our show this week. We're sort of always happy, but We're going to take a trip back in time to old New York, to the beginning of grand restaurants and gorgeous food and service and celebrities coming to these top restaurants and yet no paparazzi, no one bothering anyone. This is going to be part of what we're talking about this week. We're going to also tell you what restaurants are worthwhile going to because it's restaurant week. Come join us Sunday, starting at 2 o'clock, The Joan Hamburg Show. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. New York Restaurant Week started actually on the 17th and it's going to run through February 12th. And here's the deal if you missed it. It offers price-fixed two-course lunches and three-course dinners for $30, $45, and $60 at nearly 500 restaurants across all the five boroughs. You can get a list of the restaurants and the reservations starting at nycgo.com slash restaurantweek. I'll give it to you again, nycgo.com slash restaurantweek. And the participating restaurants can be sorted at nycgo.com by filters like location, cuisine, participating meals. For example, Barbetta's, the um, lovely Italian restaurant, beautiful Times Square Theater, is offering a three-course Monday to Friday, $45 dinner only, no lunches. Victor's Cafe is a really good Cuban restaurant in the theater district. Three-course dinner menu, $45, Monday through Friday, $30 Sunday lunch brunch. And then Shun Li, which is a legendary Chinese restaurant, is offering a $60 three-course dinner, a 32-course lunch Monday through Friday, and a special Sunday dinner. Shea Josephine offering a deal, a two-course $30 lunch, 45 dinner, including Sunday brunch. And MasterCard cardholders who pre-register their cards can get a $10 statement credit when spending 45 or more pro that's for transaction for up to three transactions, including a $30 rebate. So take advantage of restaurant week. You can find the list. And what we did is we looked for restaurants that we would not go to because they were too expensive or, and those are the restaurants we chose and took the deal and they all honor it. And it's a lot of fun. 
no matter what kind of food you want. So take advantage of it. We love Restaurant Week, and it's good to celebrate. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And happiness is something that everyone wants. And if they have it, they want to be able to keep it. A lot of people say, well, what does that mean? What is happiness? Well, Jancy Dunn, who is now going to be reporting for Well, one of our favorite things in the New York Times, she's going to be a columnist, and she's been on this beat for the journal and a lot of popular magazines and has written books at least nine books and has a new book coming out shortly and has done reporting, everything. But the happiness thing, I can't tell you, Jancy, how many phone calls I got on this alone and everyone reminding me that you can't get off the phone fast. You have to have a real thing. And it was all part of your happiness. So tell me what brought you to this. Okay, a, a book crossed our desk, and it's called The Good Life. And it was written by Bob Waldinger and Mark Schultz. And they direct the uh, Harvard Study of Adult Development, which is the world's longest scientific study of happiness. They, it started in the Depression era in 1938, and it's followed three generations. And we were just intrigued because they said that if you could boil down their findings to a single principle for living, it would be that good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. Like all kinds of relationships, not just with, you know, a partner or your kids, but everybody, you know, people in your neighborhood that you don't even know what they call weak ties, um, people that you may exchange a nod with, but you've never, you don't even know their name. You know, it, it all adds up. And so we thought, okay, we should adapt some exercises in order to strengthen your relationships. And we like this as part, we did the seven-day happiness challenge. And we liked the idea because, um, you know, there's there's all kinds of challenges that people like to take in the new year, but I, I think this is one that's doable for all ages, for all abilities. It's about strengthening your relationships. And they had a concept in there that we hadn't heard before that they coined, which was social fitness. So it's kind of like physical fitness or your psychological fitness. Are you socially fit? Are you maintaining relationships? Are you forming relationships? So we found that really interesting. All right. And you determined all of this, right? Researchers (laughs) and you. Yes, I had to, I worked with Bob And we crafted a bunch of exercises based off of the research in the book. And uh, it was great for us because there's so many different kinds of relationships that we were easily able to come up with ones, you know, for all seven days, just different slices of relationships and things that you can do. And, And I will say that even editors on staff, Sometimes, you know, it's not easy. You have to make yourself vulnerable. We, we had one exercise that was send a, a letter of gratitude to somebody that's made a difference in your life. Um, I did it with a, a teacher that 
said I was going to be a writer in, in fourth grade. I looked at a report card and Mrs. Manley called it. I, she she said, I think she has writing ability. I never knew that. She put it in my head. I didn't know you could be a writer. And she changed mm-hmm. the course of my life. So I got in touch with her. And But it's, it's hard. You may get rejected. And there's another exercise about you know, make small talk with, with people that you know in your neighborhood. If if you can, you know, do that, you studies show you're happier. But a lot of people have trouble with small talk. I, I do see that. And, and so we provided really easy exercises in the book to get started. One being, if people have uh, a dog or a baby, that's pretty much a 100% guarantee that they're going to talk to you if you say, oh, cute dog, cute baby. You know, a very easy conversation starter with someone that you don't know. But we do know it was it was daunting for people. So hopefully those exercises made it easier. But did you find that if they participated and they they took the challenge, that they could, if they were not, what one would define as happy, they could learn to be happy? Is that a learned yes. skill? It's an ongoing practice to be, to both sort of monitor your social fitness um, and to maintain it. It's not like it's one and done. It's not like, you know, you call your niece and you're done. It, it, it's an ongoing thing. And I've even noticed that since I've begun it. We, we did research for this months ago. I mean, this has been a long prep right. for us but i notice i don't know if you do joan but like if if a week has gone by and i feel a little off yet i'm getting enough sleep there's no problem i think oh wait i haven't talked to anybody that i love this week and <laughs> it is part of your overall health you know these connections and thinking of it as something to maintain um is kind of new for me and what uh, was we- so interesting that people were talking about was you point out that more than um, having a lot of money or all these things we thought were the clue to happiness, social class, it's your relationships, which is what will determine whether you're fulfilled or not. Exactly right. And that was based on the the long-term research in the book. And, you know, even I've been guilty of thinking, okay, when I make a lot of money, I mean, it's magical thinking. I'm a journalist, but like, you know, in that far off day when I make a lot of money, then everything's going to fall into place and I'll be happy. And they argue that your resources for being happy are at arm's length. You can reach out and, you know, people, they're people and, and, and not only that, but it's kind of an unlimited resource. You know, you can, there's many different sorts of people that you can reach out to. And I mean, even relatives, um, Dr. Waldinger was saying in the book that there were relatives in your own life that may be a source of buried treasure. And I realized that, you know, there's certain relatives I only interact with in kind of a group setting when we all get together in my extended family. Right. And I remember looking at my niece that I've only talked to kind of publicly. And I said, why don't we go for a walk? You know, and cause I, she's, teen- she's a teenager. I don't actually know her that well. And so we had a wonderful hour long walk where I learned more about her than I had in previous years. And, you know, that's sort of looking around at what your resources are was sort of an interesting um, aspect of it, too. And we've heard from, you know, I've been interacting with readers who say things like, I was estranged from my brother for 30 years and I got in contact with him and did 
an eight minute phone call because it's that's one of the exercises and it's it doesn't scare people. It's 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 quick, you know. And and they reconnected after thirty years, and all of us were teary eyed over that one. And you point out with all this research that if you're socially connected, and it doesn't have to be an army, right? It can be a few people. You live longer, and you have some protection against depression and declines in memory or language. Yes, hundred percent. There's really robust research on that, and uh, and you know another thing that people say is, um, oh, is there a certain number of friends I should have? Absolutely not. Um, you know the researchers were really clear on that. It's not the quantity. You don't need to have a, a million friends if you have a couple of good friends who make you feel buffered from life's problems and you feel you know they understand you great. There's no number. And other people are worried, do I have to be an extrovert? Absolutely not. I am an introvert. You can't tell because I interview people and I just present as an extrovert, but actually I'm quite shy. There's, you know, introverts need people too. They just socialize in a different way and they don't particularly perhaps like big groups. And other people were saying, is it too late for me? Never too late. People, when they retire, discover all kinds of vocations. They volunteer, they get divorced or they're widowed. They find uh, a new relationship. There's many different ways to connect. Um, I know it can be hard, though. I don't want to sound too sunny about it. It takes work Mm -hmm. and you have to keep maintaining it. But the benefits can be physical and mental can be enormous. Right. And you point out that it doesn't have to be a major relationship. It could be talking to the mail carrier or someone at the dog run. Yes, indeed. I mean, if you, you know, we've all seen how that happens. We have like a little friendly exchange, maybe um, at the grocery store or something. And then you walk away with a little glow. You know, you feel a little better about the world. And that's real. I did it in my neighborhood. I talked to um, this woman whose dachshund always barked at me. And finally, I thought, all right, that's it. I'm going to talk to her. And I said, you know, how can I make friends with your dachshund? And she said, oh, Petey doesn't like it when people wear hats. It oh makes him gosh. bark. <laughs> Petey the dachshund. So I said, oh, so, and she said, I don't want to tell everyone I pass in the neighborhood, so I didn't tell you, but um, winters are hard for Petey. I thought, yeah, okay, because everyone's wearing hats. So now when I see Petey, I pull my hat off. He doesn't bark. It's so funny. And to me, you know, then the neighborhood is a friendlier place. I know Petey. I know the woman now. I know Petey's foibles. And it just makes it better for, for me, too. Right. And she feels good about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one, one less person, you know, Petey, Petey refrains from barking, at least me, because I, I see him in the distance and I, I say, oops, got to take the hat off. That's very funny. And I like the secret power of the eight-minute phone call. How'd you guys get to eight minutes? Okay, we had a long meeting about this, and I started doing it with my friends who were busy because I would say, come on, can you do eight minutes? To me, five is unrealistic. You know, it's too short, but 10 can, there's a danger that it can go to to 15, 20, 30. And, you know, like it or not, people are busy and you know, I cite research in this challenge that there was, there was this one 
these one researchers, a uh, group of researchers in Texas, they studied phone calls. Only 2% of them, uh, both parties wanted to get off at the same time. Some people wanted to talk longer. Others were dying to get off the phone. There's When there's a hard out of eight minutes, everybody can relax. And if you're calling somebody that you really care about, you can get down to it really quickly. You can dispense with small talk. And we've just found, and, and the researchers kind of back that up, like, oh, you can make a genuine connection in eight minutes. And so that really took off. I, I remember um, Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston even um, wrote about the eight-minute phone call, well, posted it in her Instagram stories, and we said, oh, my goodness. I mean, <laughs> she's busy. She can do eight minutes. So can the rest of us, Right. Right. You know, and the truth is, often it is eight minutes without even realizing it. Right, exactly. Like you're, 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 you say, okay, I've arrived at the dry cleaner. Because a lot of people try to fit in their friends as they're mm. running around, right? And then, right. And you, should, you have to go anyway. And just that takes away the, um, the discomfort of kind of saying, oh, I have to go. And um, there was another funny cue, cue in there that um, we cited more research about. <laughs> that a conversational cue to get off the phone is. So anyway, and I realized <laughs> that I've heard friends say that to me. So, <laughs> you know, or or I'll let you go. My mother says that to me. That means I want I'm, to go. I've had enough, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and I like chat up with someone you don't know. Now, I have a friend who does it all the time. You go to the theater and she'll talk to them, the people in front, the people in back, the people next to her. And it used to annoy us. But it gave her such pleasure that, you know, we'd say, why don't you do this with your friends? No, she likes it with strangers. Everybody has one of those friends. (laughs) So that's one of the things. And it's worth it, even if you're uneasy making small talk. You know, a lot of people have to learn how to do small talk. It's a skill like anything else, isn't it? And, And, you know... Um, other people that I talk to that um, social psychologists, they say, just keep in mind if someone rejects you, and I've been doing it as an experiment for weeks now, you know, because we walk the talk on these things. And, and, you know, if somebody turns away, like there's been times where, you know, I'm friendly, but people have kind of backed away from me and maybe they think I'm trying to sell them something or pull out a pamphlet. You never know. But the one researcher said to me, an English researcher said, you have to remember they're not rejecting you. They don't know you. And that has been helpful because it's not like they're, they know anything about me. They're not rejecting me as a person. And so, and who knows what's going on with people, right? There's all kinds of reasons why they don't want to chat with you. You move on to someone else. So we've been, you know, instructing readers, like if you, if, if it's not working, move on to someone else. Don't take it personally. Um, easier said than done you know rejection is rejection but Uh you just have to keep going because it's worth it you know i have a friend in the days when people had dinner parties you know before (laughs) covid and everything and she said she had a guy sitting next to her and he asked what she did and she was at home, it was had been COVID and she was taking care of two or three kids. And she said, she looked at him, he just turned away from her. She He deemed her not interesting enough to oh. have a conversation. So 
that happens to people very often, especially in cities like New York. Right. When what do you do is the first question, right? Exactly. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. He didn't even bother getting to know her. So no, not at all. About her. Yeah. She said he didn't a... even know my name. He aye, just, aye, aye. Like, what do you do? And it obviously wasn't interesting enough. Mm-hmm. And he physically turned away. Oi. But do I you tell make you, conversation with people, Joan. Do you? Do make, I watch? Are you a talk up a stranger type? Because you talk to people all day. Maybe may, I, I'm just curious. When you're off duty, do you still chat with people, or maybe you need to conserve your energy? Well, I still talk to friends a lot, but we mm-hmm. on weekends if we were going somewhere, my husband would say to me, "Why aren't you talking to me? You talk all day to everyone." I say, "Well, I'm sort of <laughs> talked out, but but I'm a talker." You know, with friends. I loved your living elegy. I always wanted to start a business, Funerals for the Living, because all that nice stuff, and you're not there to hear it. It's sort of annoying. But Wait, it's a waste of energy. It's like, why not appreciate people while they're still still among us? I agree. That's a great idea. Yeah, it would be a good business, but they may be a little insulted. Anyway, you've had a very good response to this piece. Uh, we have. We've gotten uh, millions of clicks, just an overwhelming response. And it certainly pointed towards that people are hungry for connection, uh-huh. that maybe they don't always need to go about it. Um, you know, we, we, we're definitely going to continue that coverage because we see how loneliness impacts your health there's it's a bad thing yeah i mean there's this an epidemic of loneliness as our surgeon general uh vivek murthy said and you know among older people it can be difficult for them and and if they're housebound and so we're definitely going to think of ways to continue this because it's it really seemed to have struck a nerve with people and um so, yeah, there's all kinds of directions we can go in. No, it's a really good topic, and people do need that helping hand. I like the importance of work friends, too. Well, yeah, we, we settled on that because a lot of people, particularly kind of post-COVID when everyone's filtering back into the office or, um, you know, if they're students or um we even classed, you know, we said if you're retired, it could be at whatever place where you spend a lot of time. But there's sometimes a feeling of I'm going to get in and I'm going to get out and I'm going to clock in and do my work and get out. And that is I understand that impulse. And sometimes you just feel like you have nothing left to give after you've been at work all day. But there's an important study that shows that um, if you have a best friend at work, that you are more engaged at work, that you stay longer at that employer, that you um, that people report feeling happier. Um, and and I've been I was polling around before we did the work exercise, and a lot of people I know don't have a best friend at work, and that makes you feel unsupported. And you know, as Dr. Waldinger said, you know, say you spend eight hours or more at that job, that's a large portion of your day to not feel connected. To others. And so he really, you know, he devoted a whole chapter to it of, you know, make connections 
It doesn't, you know, you don't have to have a best friend, just people that make you feel supported because otherwise that can really impact you psychologically mm-hmm. at work, you know? So we were, I mean, there's all kinds of practical things. You can hang out, you know, in the snack room where everyone gathers okay. and just make conversation. You can, you can see what people are displaying. If you work at a place where there's cubicles, if there's pictures, you know, people always like talking about their families, their pets, um, all kinds of small ways. Cause that can be difficult for people too, you know, well. and we understood that. There's a whole lot uh, to go on to well, and you're going to find the seven-day happiness challenge. And I know a lot of you, now that the weather's getting crummy, do things like maybe cancel plans because it's tempting to curl up on the couch, but socializing <laughs> is better for you. A good job. We'll talk again, and good luck at your new job at the Times. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you so much for having me on. I, I, I love being here. A pleasure. We're all going to be happier. Thank you. I appreciate (laughs) your time. I'm Joan Hamburg. You're listening to WABC and more to come. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. You know, we get so many books, I can't tell you. I read so many books. It's like I finish a book and someone says, what did you just read? I say, let me think for a minute because they're piled up. You come to my house and usually everywhere you look, there are books and you know, people come and say, can I take this book or can I borrow that book? I had such a good time reading the latest that arrived called The Delmonico and The Delmonico Way, which was an expression that I heard a lot. And it's by Max Tucci, who is a producer, the host of Max and Friends, Max is on television, he's on radio, he writes, he talks, he's a great foodie, and he knows a lot about entertainment. He is part of the Delmonico legacy, one of the great restaurants in New York City. And I still remember when I was coming of age and restaurants like the Delmonico were such an occasion and such a treat and such a thrill to go there and you would see celebrities and stars and the women would dress and the men would be all done up and you really felt you were part of New York when you did this and celebrated whatever occasions or even just going. So Max in his new book, he brought it all back, including the recipes and it was, you would eat, you know, you didn't have I don't know how the world has changed so much, but I don't remember anyone being gluten-free, hyperallergic, you name it, they all had it. The pool waiters, as time went on, had to deal with all these food issues. But in the days of the Delmonico and the Delmonico way, just going through those sacred doors was enough of an occasion and a thrill. 
And we didn't eat out the way, you know, people eat out. They drag their kids. They go everywhere. Eating out was like something special. And our eating out was maybe a restaurant like the Delmonico for a big occasion. But it was basically the local Chinese restaurant on Sunday night where you would order two from column A, one from column B. They they don't have that in New York anymore. Or maybe they do somewhere in Chinatown. But basically, it was different. And reading this book not only was a love song to New York or the New York that existed then, but to a family and to a restaurant, the Delmonico Way. And I'm curious, Max, you grew up in this world and you loved it and your family and relatives. So how did this come about? What made you decide this was the time now to open up the family coffers? (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you so much, Joan, for having me here. You know, from, from the Demonica Way, which is a New York Institute icon, to Joan Hamburg, New York's radio's first lady, you're another icon. So you understand iconic uh, restaurants. Um, and so, you know, Joan, it's a wonderful question. For years, I've been penning this book, 15 years, um, to really get it accurate, historically accurate. My, my father, my aunt, my grandfather, my ancestors, when they took over Delmonico's in 1926, you know, I like to say they had the, the treasure trove that Ariel from The Little Mermaid had. You know, all these treasures untold. How many wonders can one cavern hold? And so for all these years, I was thinking, what am I going to do with all of these archives that I have that my family saved over the years? So I started penning a book. And it was not an easy um, thing to do. And it took so long that at moments I thought I was going to give up. And I kept getting this push to say, Max, keep going and tell the story of the Delmonica Way, sublime, entertaining and legendary recipes from the restaurant that made New York. And finally, Rizzoli, they came to the table and they said, we want to do the book. And so it's just been a love song indeed. You said those words, and that's what it is for me. It's a love song to share my history, my family's history, and this iconic institution that, that really celebrates old New York. Right, old New York. And, and Delmonico's, we're going back, when you say old New York, to 1827. And the restaurant scene in those days was so different from what we have now. And your family was really amazing because they started eating was an experience, was dining. They had wonderful china and silver and napkins and special menus. And I didn't know that the power lunch originated in Delmonico's. And that's become a trademark even to this day. Indeed. Well, you know, many have tried to um, attribute the power lunch to them coining it. You know, for instance, in 1979, Esquire editor-in-chief Lee Eisenberg said, oh, the power lunch. And they said, oh, that's a great term. But we have to go back to really 1868 was the first time that Delmonico's, a restaurant in general, allowed women to dine unaccompanied by men. So what does that mean? Prior to that, women could only go to a restaurant with a man. And some say, Max, this is crazy. I said, 
what we have to flash forward to the 1970s, women weren't even allowed to have a credit card recently unless their husband co-signed for them. So the movement for women has been such a struggle. And it was Delmonico's and the Delmonico brothers that really broke that glass ceiling. And I don't want to sound antiquated by saying the word aloud, but allowed women to dine unaccompanied by men. And so it was really quite the extraordinary affair, something to be celebrated. And the Delmonico brothers were very clever. Yes, in 1827, they opened their first uh, bake shop, a confectionery. And then by 1930, it became a restaurant. And all the way, they had such success um, until about the 1920s when Prohibition set in. And eventually, they had to close. And then by 1926, the restaurant was empty. And my grandfather, a a Tuscan immigrant from Florence, Italy, knew that that building was going to be his. And he resurrected the phoenix and helped rise it from the ashes. But you know... um... What I'm curious about, too, when you were the the beholder of all the memorabilia and everything, mm-hmm. but they kept a log of everyone, like you said, Elizabeth Taylor ain't there, Jacqueline Kennedy, my hero when I was obsessed with movie stars, Rock Hudson, <laughs> Gypsy Rose Lee, they were all part of your restaurant that, that yeah. was their home away from home, Joan Crawford all welcome to the famous tables at Delmonico's. So you found all these reservations and all these lists? Exactly. You know, my so to paint the picture of the characters, my grandfather, Oscar Tucci, was the head. He, you know, was the one that purchased the building, operated the restaurant. My Aunt Mary, who was his daughter, which we call the iron fist with the lace glove, she was the first woman to work in finances in a restaurant. And then my father, Mario Tucci, He was really the playboy of the restaurant. He brought everyone in. He had an entertainment company. He made sure that the glitz and the glamour was there, Joan. So my Aunt Mary had saved every single piece of ephemera, some of it dating back to 1800s printed on silk menus for the royal family. But as you're saying, the lists of Gypsy Rose Lee and Babe Ruth and Virginia Graham and Debbie Reynolds and Ava Gabor She saved the reservation books, the guest books, the photographs, the newspaper clippings, you know. So for all these years, and then my mother naturally continued to save them for me. And so I never knew that this treasure trove was one day going to become, you know, a book. And not only a book, but one that shares the rich history of what was Cary Grant's favorite drink. What did Marilyn Monroe eat? What did Elizabeth Taylor request when she went to Delmonico's? So to be able to celebrate old New York, old Hollywood, the Daily News did a double-page spread on the book, and they said Max Tucci recreates the era of lush luxury. And since then, the book has become a number one bestseller on Amazon. So we're thrilled. Well, you should be. That's a very hard task and feat. And it is fantastic, and it takes us back uh, to a time when Really, eating in a good restaurant was so much a part of mm. one's life if they if they could afford it. It was a, a fantastic introduction to the city. And your family introduced you how to do it, how every napkin has to be perfect <laughs> and folded. They were really, they watched everything. 
they watched everything. And, you know, it was interesting because earlier you had said the fine china and the silver. Imagine, Joan, well, you, you don't have to imagine. You went to Delmonico's, you know, from WOR. But Delmonico's had Genori on the table, the beautiful plates from Italy, Genori, Cristolfo sterling silver. They had Baccarat. ashtrays, Baccarat glasses. Can you imagine? And recently I was asked on on my book tour, someone said, what happens if a glass went missing? I said, glasses never went missing because back then my Aunt Mary made sure that if a glass was missing, that the waiter, the server, would be charged for it. So they were all very cautious of what was on the table. And my job as a child growing up, you know, we had one also in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, My job was to check to make sure the glasses didn't have chips on them, that the plates didn't have any chips and that all the light bulbs were working and one task that i had which was not glamorous at all but i had to clean the ashtrays and they were basically grooming me to take over the restaurant my sister nicoletta on the other hand she was able to be in the kitchen and cook and (laughs) and so i you know i one day i said i want to go in the kitchen and then that was it Uh, that was my love affair with the kitchen right you you got hooked (laughs) and you know it is a gift they taught you and the family, how to act with the guests, how to check on the wait staff and everyone else to make sure things weren't missing or, you know, someone decided they wanted a little snack and just took something. <laughs> so Indeed. they watched everything. When you were doing the book, did it make you want to bring it all back? You know, I think, and I have to pause when I answer this question because, you know, Joan, to bring back what was, I don't think, can ever happen again. Delmonico's was such a unique time during my family's you know, operation because people then were different in the sense self-worth and honor. You know, when I go through the photographs and I see women wearing diamonds by the yard and, you know, the Cartier lighters, there was such this affluence and such this beauty of expression to dining. Gypsy Rose Lee would be in a full gown and a sable shrug. Virginia Graham would show up in a chinchilla cape. You know, it's like, so today, I think to recreate something like Delmonico's was, for anyone, is very difficult. Now, I flirted with the idea, but do I really want to own a restaurant? Not really. It's such a business where, you know, literally, Joan, my father died of a massive stroke because of the demands. You know, he was constantly stressed. And with Delmonico's having such a reputation, you never knew, you know, is Gail Green coming in? Who's coming in? Who's, you know, going to write about the restaurant? So every day had to be perfection in the Delmonico way. Right. Even the bar. I mean, I shouldn't say even the bar. Your bartenders originated incredible drinks. I mean, glamorous drinks Mm -hmm. that became part of drink history. Yeah. Well, you know, it's fun because when I was going through my Aunt Mary's diary and notes and all of this ephemera that I have, you know, I learned what Cary Grant's favorite drink was. And it's so funny because the Daily News, when they wrote about it, the New York Daily News, they said, it sounds like a hangover in the glass, right? That's funny. And right. my father brought the Negroni to the restaurants in America. You know, we have a house in Florence, Italy, and he was constantly at Harry's Bar, and they were serving the Bellini and the Negroni. Mm-hmm. And my father said, oh, we have to bring this to America. So when he introduced the Negroni to the bar, he did his Delmonico way tip, which was to top it off with a vintage rosé champagne. So the Delmonico way really, Joan, is taking everything to the next level to really have the experience. You know, I think where dining has changed, and I said this recently and I got into a little bit of trouble, is that 
the celebrity chef has become the one that everyone wants to go see. Let's go see the celebrity chef. Instead, it's really about the client. And my grandfather and father always said about the client, the validation. Do you see them? Do you hear them? And do they matter? And so that in itself is a, is a tone that I feel is missing from restaurants today because everyone's going now to celebrate the chef instead of the chef celebrating the client. Right. Well, the chefs today have their own PR. Yeah. And um, that wasn't what was going on then. Now, I'm curious. Delmonico was famous for a lot of its special food dishes. How did you choose what went into this book? <laughs> well, that was a task in itself. And, you know, over the recipes, the Epicurean, which is the Delmonico cookbook that dates back to the 1800s, has literally thousands of recipes. And so I really wanted to do touch points that were the most noted throughout the years, the century, you know, the, the decades of Delmonico's. Oysters Rockefeller, Baked Alaska, Lobster Newburgh, yeah, the Delmonico dishes. Steak. You know, all of these things were said to have originated at Delmonico's. My grandfather in the 1930s created the wedge salad. He had gone, you know, their farms were in Bridgeport, Connecticut and in Staten Island, and he had the first refrigerated Cadillac that he would be able to go to these farms and bring fresh produce back. So when I was picking the recipes for the book, yes, I wanted to have the staples and the classics, but I also wanted to go through like salmon aspic. No one makes aspic anymore. And so how do I create an aspic where I don't really, I'm not, I don't know how to create aspic. So that's when I called on celebrity chef friends like Andrew Zimmern, who he gave me his grandmother's salmon tomato aspic. Carla Hall gave me her delicious cheesecake because cheesecake was one of the number one items sold at the lunches. We did over a thousand lunches a day mm. downtown. And then of course the baked Alaska was Letty Alvarez. And so really I have chefs from all over the world contribute their take also on Delmonico classics. And what your family did, they didn't allow paparazzi in so that famous clients, even though they loved getting press, but they loved getting it in a certain way. They didn't want to be harassed or Mm -hmm. worry about every time they lifted a spoon that someone was going to be taking a picture or writing about them. And he was way ahead of his time when it came to that. The The guests came first and he protected yeah. them. He did. You know, he. my grandfather was known for saying, all are welcome at my table. And when he said all, he meant everyone, including Kristen Jorgensen and Lena Horne, where at times women like Lena Horne and, and Kristen Jorgensen weren't allowed into restaurants. And my right. grandfather welcomed everyone. And the no paparazzi rule, I love you for saying that, Joan, because it's something that was so important to Oscar because he wanted celebrities to feel safe in the restaurant. If they wanted their pictures, they would go to the 21 Club. They would go to Stork Club. They would go to Copacabana. They knew that they were there, you know, for the scene. But Oscar wanted a place where they could come and retreat to. That's why Rock Hudson would come there. You know, he would go by all the paparazzi outside and the screaming fans when they heard that he was coming, and he would retreat to a quiet booth. So celebrities, it was interesting because they would dress, yes, for the occasion, but they also had this intimate, intimate in the sense it was a huge, 70,000 square feet was the full operation, but intimate in the sense where they knew they had a place that they could go where they could not be harassed or bothered by the camera. And so the pictures that we have of celebrities are very few, but they're very 
they're so beautiful because you can capture those moments of Ava Gabor and Red Buttons enjoying dinner at Delmonico's, but on very rare occasions when, if there was an event, a photographer was allowed in. And so right. it really, it became the staple that I think drew the celebrity, old Hollywood, Turner Classic Movie Hollywood, into, uh, into the restaurant. I couldn't believe that Abraham Lincoln ate there. I mean, is that a true? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we have to go back, you know, to talk about the present, we really have to talk about the past, right? And so what the Delmonico brothers really did was introduce uh, fine dining to America. And so since Abraham Lincoln, they said every president had dined at Delmonico's, even Nikola Tesla and Mark Twain had his birthday, you know, and there were various locations around New York. So when people say, well, was it at this location or was it downtown or was it midtown? So they really, you know, to say that they had a fine dining chain, the Delmonico brothers, they really did. They created this fine dining chain and they operated it almost for 100 years. So it was quite the endeavor of a family affair. And then it was beautiful to have my family be able to operate it from the 1920s to the 1980s. Right. And survived all kinds of things, including prohibition. And I love the story of, I think it was your grandfather's wife. Yeah, my grandmother's sister. Your grandmother, <laughs> who would smuggle the gin into the restaurant with her baby. She came in with the baby carriage, and the baby was covered. And that was Mario. And um, the booze would be under the cover. It was, you know, I laughed because we called my grandmother Sesta. And, you know, Joan, remember, I never met my grandfather Oscar or my grandmother Sesta. So I only have these stories that were passed down to me about them. But my grandmother Sesta was one of the most incredible women ever. She was known as the original bootlegger because she would literally bring alcohol in my father's pram. But she was also one of the kindest women around. You know, Sierra Maccioni, who worked, who owned Le Cirque, the famous Sierra Maccioni in Le Cirque, he first worked at Delmonico's, and it was my grandmother that secretly gave him money so that he could go back to Italy, get all of his paperwork together so that he could come to America and become a citizen. And then naturally he married Edgy at our apartment in Park Avenue on 1165 Park Avenue. And so my grandmother was so kind, but she had such a streak of funny to her where she would help my father, my grandfather, <laughs> you know, smuggle in his illegal alcohol during Prohibition. And, and tell the story, you know, it's very hard to get, keep the, the crowd and keep people going. And Wall Street was a very coveted group, and especially the restaurant was downtown. So Tucci put a stock ticker at the end of the bar, and that's where all the Wall Street execs would hang out. Can yeah. you imagine if someone did that today? They could didn't have to worry about work. They didn't have to run back to see what was happening with the market. Lehman Brothers, you wrote, had their own room and ticker. And these guys, because they were mostly guys then from Wall Street, they could just come and have their wonderful lunch, take a little glance at the end of the bar, and feel it was safe and okay. You know, it's so my grandfather was really ahead of his time and a true genius. He did. He brought the first ticker tape to the restaurant, to the bar. So that meant that when he did these thousand lunches a day, just imagine that number, right? How many people were going to Delmonico's to dine? He didn't want them to leave. You know, the more drinks, the more money, <laughs> right? right? So he kept this. And what was fascinating was, and I found all of these old newspaper clippings, you know, because people are like, oh, you know, they're always skeptical about when you say the first, especially in New York, right? 
And so I have all of the newspaper clippings that date back to when my grandfather brought this ticker tape in. But he went as far, Joan, to teach the staff how to read the ticker tape as well so they could then tell the clientele what was going on. So imagine, you know, the the heads of J.P. Morgan, Lehman Brothers, they were all there. You know, Muriel Cyber, who was the first woman on Wall Street, she always went to Delmonico's. And that ticker tape machine was one of the biggest assets that my grandfather had, had placed in the restaurant. In addition to, he had a menu printing press because the menu was constantly changing because, remember, it really was then farm to table. And so the menu was changing. So Oscar Tucci really brought so many wonderful attributes to the restaurant, including this ticker tape. And I have the original ticker tape ribbons. My Aunt Mary even saved those, and we put those in the book as well. You know, Max, I was trying to remember, what is in that space now? So the space, when we go back to originally, it was, you know, the restaurant, and then there were offices for immigration. There were offices for ship insurance. Then it went on to what my grandfather purchased. First, he purchased the lower level, because that's where the kitchen was, and the first floor, which was the restaurant. He had a speakeasy in the 1920s in the basement. And then as time progressed, and by 1933, he had the third liquor license in New York. And my Aunt Mary saved that, so that's in the book as well. And, uh-huh. then, he, and then he bought the entire building. So there were floors of the Bull and Bear Room, the Python Room, the Penthouse, which is where Rock Hudson would go. And, you know, there were all of these incredible rooms and private rooms throughout the building, plus offices. Lehman Brothers had an office. The Harvard Club had their spot there as well. So when Oscar Tucci was running Delmonico's, 70,000 square feet of, of entertaining, of fine dining, of lunch areas, of the oyster bar. And then when my mother and my Aunt Mary sold the building after my father's death, um, the restaurant still stayed on the, uh, the same floor and the basement. And then there were apartments that were, um, they transformed the building into apartments. So I have a couple of friends that live in the building, and it's a wonderful place to live, you know, to be able to live in the iconic Delmonico's building is such of a course. cool thing, the landmark building, you know. And, um, and now, unfortunately, the restaurant is closed, and, you know, fingers crossed that, that it opens soon and that someone, whoever is going to take it over, you know, operates it in such a way that we can see what Delmonico's means, not only to New York, but the world. Right, but the family still has the space. No, you know, we sold the space and um, and that was kind of like a bittersweet moment, you know, for my mother and my aunt. But when my father died, my aunt was in the industry for 40 plus years, you know, and she was tired. And my mother, my mother was actually in the fashion industry. She opened Jaeger on Madison Avenue. She opened the Roberto Di Camerino store with Onassis and Olympic Tower. She was the vice president of Maximilian Furs. So the restaurant industry for her was one that, you know, she would bring all the the designers in and the models in, but she did not want to be a part of it after my father's death. So we closed New York, and then we had Greenwich, Connecticut also, and we closed Greenwich, Connecticut. And that was really, for my mother, I think, one of the hardest moments of of her time because her husband had just passed, you know, and she had called Tony May from San Domenico, New York, and he right. had the Rainbow Room. He used to work for Delmonico's. That was his first job. And she called him and said, Tony, Mario passed. Please take over Delmonico's. And Tony said, Gina, I can't do a restaurant in Greenwich. My mother then called Sirio. Sirio, please take over Delmonico's in Greenwich. And Sirio said, you know, with Le Cirque, I don't know if I can. And so today, they, when I spoke to Tony before he passed, he said, I wished 
I had taken over Delmonico's in Greenwich because today Greenwich, Connecticut is such a, a capital for, for food with some of the best chefs in the world. Right, and up good, restaurants wonderful there. restaurants. Yeah. Well, you never know. The future could be very bright. And next time I go out and people order Eggs Benedict, I'm going to remind <laughs> them that this dish was invented at Delmonico's. Who knew that? And people still cherish it today. And when I make salad, I'm going to remember no warm plate. Even the forks and knives have to be chilled. Yes. (laughs) There are a lot of good life's lessons there. You did a great job. It was so much fun to read. And it was a trip through old New York. And what could be still. What could be still indeed. And Joan, I love that you said that the, the chilled plates and forks and knives. Because that's the Delmonico way. That's really the essence. My grandfather always said, how can you serve a cold salad on a warm plate? <laughs> it's, right? Yeah. And so it's really to, to bring all of that to these pages and the eggs Benedict, Tara Koss is a dear friend of mine. We call her the, the yolk queen. She, yeah. <laughs> um, made, she did this recipe. So you can bring the Delmonico way into your home and you can make all these recipes Valentine's Day. Stay home this year and cook. Have a romantic affair at home. (laughs) They sound good. And make Cherry's Jubilee dishes that a lot of us grew up with, you know, on special occasions. It wasn't exactly the Jell-O dessert. But it's all there, and it is a fun trip. Thank you so much. I look forward to it. The Delmonico Way by Max Tucci. Enjoy. We'll talk again. Thank you, Joan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC and much more ahead. Stay tuned. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. Broadway's original destination for theater-loving kids is returning to New York City on July 10th through the 14th for one week only with two of their signature programs. Great for kids who love this. Main stage, 10 to 17 years old, shining stars, ages seven to nine. They're not cheap. Each program costs $1,495, but scholarships are available. Camp Broadway was founded in 1995. It's a great environment, safe, enriching. For children and teens of all backgrounds and skill levels, it builds confidence, it helps presentation skills, and it discovers their unique talents on and off stage. You can have your child participate without any performance experience. It's owned and operated by the Broadway Education Alliance, a not-for-profit, and over 400,000 youngsters have attended Camp Broadway camps, special performances, educational workshops. So this season, this summer season, main stage 10 to 17 old, that's the range, 
Shining Stars, ages seven to nine, are taught by Broadway directors, choreographers, music directors. Five activity-packed days of classes in singing, dancing, movement, acting, and stagecraft. Special guests, master classes, and more. Both programs at the Pearl Studios, 508th Avenue. That's where a lot of Broadway shows rehearse. And every class will culminate with a family finale showcase. Students go on a field trip to Times Square. They go behind the scenes to find out what it takes to make a Broadway show. And they get to attend a big hit musical. So for more about one of my favorite activities for kids who are theater kids, Camp Broadway, go on to campbroadway.com. Your kids are going to thank you. And Happy Chinese New Year for all of our listeners and friends who are celebrating. Yes, the start of Chinese New Year today, the year of the rabbit. So happy, happy to one and all. I'm Joan Hamburg, and we're coming up to the three o'clock. Thank you so much for sharing the show. Much more straight ahead. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.